Amen. Please be seated. And if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 3. If you're doing so, I do want to make one quick amendment um, as you are heading there. Our passage this morning is probably one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. So we need to take due diligence in studying it. And one thing that came to my attention this week is we're going to need to take two weeks studying it. So we are. Um, This morning we're going to be spending our time in verses 8 through 19. Please ignore um, the outline that says we're going through the end of the chapter. Um, We will do this portion today. And then, Lord willing, next week um, we will conclude the book. But we are going to be in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19 this morning. Um, So I invite you to turn there. With that being said, we are continuing right where we left off from last week in chapter 3. This section of God's Word is dealing with Adam and Eve, their fall into sin and their consequences thereof. Last week we took a focused um, time, or a, a focused attention on the sin itself. This week we're going to talk about the consequences or reaction to the sin. And this is something I want us to be aware of and, and honestly constantly reflecting upon in our lives. Because sin comes with a cost. And this cost is real, whether you get caught or not, whether if from a worldly perspective it would benefit you or not, whether anyone knows or not, sin is costly. And the price is precious. It is your soul, your eternal state that's far too high a price to gamble with. And so I implore each one of us to take our sin seriously and consider not only what it cost us, but what it cost the Lord. With that in mind, let us turn our attention to our text and hear just what it cost for Adam and Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I will begin in verse 8 and read through verse 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the hearing of it. Let us go to him now in prayer and ask that very thing of him. Dear Heavenly Father, I do ask that we this morning would not just hear your word, but that we would receive your word. That we would listen. And listen with an intent to change our hearts. To repent of sin. To turn from the wickedness of it and turn toward you. Father, sin is costly, comes at a great price. It cost you your son, but because of that, we may be forgiven. May we, through studying your word this morning, come to the conclusion that our sin is great, but our Savior is greater. Please be with us now in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My wife told me a story recently about our youngest child while he was at preschool. He found a leftover crumb on the floor while Lisa and another teacher were talking. Instead of putting it instantly into his mouth, he held his hands to his side and started acting disinterested until enough time had passed that he thought they had forgotten about him, despite the fact he was the only one in the room. He then ate his treasure while standing in eyesight of the two teachers. Think about this from his perspective. Put yourself in the mind of a just over one-year-old. He found something he wanted, and he really wanted it. But he knew he wasn't supposed to have it. So the only logical conclusion was to secure it for himself and hide it lest someone else take his treasure away. Now, look at it from the other perspective. Consider the teachers in the room. They see a child pick something up, pretend to hide it, even though they're taller than him and can see every aspect of what he is doing. Then after what to a one-year-old is a long amount of time, which assuredly is not, he then eats it in front of them, not hiding anymore, for he feels he's accomplished his purpose. It's a pretty funny story, if you ask me, because I can see it, I can play it out in my head. And we should laugh at stories like that, But then at the same time, I want you to consider that's what was going on with Adam and Eve in the garden. The exact same situation. They've committed a sin before God, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God. They thought they could get away with it. And so they hide in the trees that God made from the God that made them, and they waited. They waited because they thought they could escape the consequences, that they would not get caught. This is how ridiculous we often look when we try to hide our sin. 
This is what it looks like to our Savior and sometimes to each other as we think we're more clever than we deserve. What we get in our text is a tragic situation, really. As God confronts Adam and Eve and even the serpent about this sin. And today I want us to think about three consequences of this act. Two consequences directly related to sin and one consequence related to um, sin itself. First, I want us to see this morning that sin creates fear. We're going to find that in verses 8 through 13. Secondly, I want us to see that sin requires consequences each and every time. We'll find that in 16 to 19. And then finally, we're going to take a look at the heart of the passage and conclude sin's defeat is guaranteed, even from the beginning in 14 and 15. So let's consider these three aspects of sin beginning at the beginning of our passage. And if you went a little further back to the, to the start of this chapter, Adam and Eve have just been deceived by the serpent and have eaten the forbidden fruit. They have sewn together fig leaves in order to cover themselves to hide their nakedness. This is a pretty bad situation to be in. But even worse, now comes God in the cool of the day. This is your, oh no, mom is coming and I completely forgot to clean up the room like I was told moment. Full panic sets in. We read, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's never been mention of Adam and Eve hiding themselves from God. This is not a normal occurrence. This is not the reaction they typically took when God came into their presence. This is new. This is related to sin. They do not want to be seen by God, nor do they want to endure His questions that were bound to come. They now have knowledge of good and evil, just like the serpent promised. However, this didn't live up to what they wanted it to be, for they realized God is good, and what they have done is evil. But God is not in a haste. You almost picture it in your head as God strolling through the garden, walking, checking on things. And then He just calls out, where are you? And to prove they're not very good at this hide and seek, Adam quickly responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear. That's the relationship now between man and God. What Adam and Eve used to enjoy, fellowship, closeness, unity, blessing, delight, has been replaced with fear. And in that fear, Adam reveals the situation without owning up to it. Did you catch it? It wasn't, I have sinned, forgive me, O Father. It's, I am afraid. He does not lead with, we have disobeyed. But yet, by his answer, he makes it clear what he has done. And God, in his great mercy, does not strike him dead right then and there. Although God said, if you eat of this fruit, you'll die. So God had every right at that moment, at that point, to strike them dead. And yet, they live. 
And even more than that, God just continues with his questioning. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God being direct at this point, giving Adam the chance to bring a defense before God. Again, this would have been a great time to ask for forgiveness, to beg for mercy, to accept your sin in responsibility and take ownership of it. We get none of these in Adam. Instead, we get shame, fear, and blame shifting. Adam replies, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate of it. Adam blames Eve, sure, but don't miss that. Who is Adam really blaming in this text? Whose fault is it that he ate of the fruit? God's. Yeah. You did this, God. You gave me the woman. It's your fault. Eve, following in her husband's footsteps, does a similar thing. The serpent deceived me and I ate. You've got to give it to Eve, though. She didn't blame God and she didn't blame her husband. At least she goes to a third party. But this is the one of the first things that sin does to us, doesn't it? When we're confronted by our sin, when we disobey, we turn to fear, and then we turn to blame. We don't want to accept the fact that we have done wrong. This environment, this situation, this circumstance, the response to this question, to this person, they did this, they said this, they thought this, it wouldn't have been this way if I wouldn't have been here. That's how we tend to respond, isn't it? That's what we want to do. That's what our heart wants us to do. Instead of, God, I am wrong. I am sorry. I have broken your law. I have forgotten your ways. Fear. Sin. Sin creates fear in us. And it's not a fear of the holiness of God either. It's not a righteous fear. We are told to fear the Lord and holiness. But it's fear of getting caught. It's fear of facing consequences. It's, it's fear of retribution. The next thing we see about sin is that it does require consequences. For if there were no consequences to sin, we would not learn to hate it. We would not learn to despise it. We would not learn to... Stay as far away from it as possible. And so I invite you to skip a few verses. Um, we're going to jump ahead and then go back. But let's look at verse 16 and following to see how sin doesn't only create fear, but it requires consequences. God responds to each of the parties here. He's heard their case. They've made their plea. And God gives them his response. Between Adam and Eve, he first looks to the woman. He says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Notice she isn't killed. She was promised death if she ate of the tree, and yet she's still allowed to live. That's mercy. Mercy proceeds, comes before 
punishment. God is being merciful even in his judgment. And don't miss that. Her judgment specifically comes upon childbirth. The pain it requires to bear a child is multiplied. She would not be barren, but it will come at a cost. The Bible will tell us all throughout the scriptures that children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a good gift from God. This is not taken from her. But every time a woman bears a child, whether she realizes it or not, she is living out this moment between God and Eve. She is being reminded of the pain of sin and the cost of it. It's a constant reminder of what took place in the garden. Her second judgment comes in the form of her desires. She shall have desires contrary to her husband, and yet he shall rule over her. Now, there's a great deal of discussion amongst commentators on this particular passage and what it means, but it does seem very clear that there's an ordered ruling taking place. The husband was meant to be the head of the relationship. And this is clear when we look in the New Testament as how Christ relates to the church. I am the head, you are the body. I am the vine, you are the branches. As the bride of Christ, we as the, the, the bride, he is the head. And we are to submit to him. And this is good and this is a blessing. And this should not be seen in a negative way, although society loves demonizing this idea this model in a sinless world was designed to be a wonderful, beautiful relationship where the man leads in perfect love and unity and the wife submits in love and meekness without any strife or pain, each thinking of the best for the other. However, because sin entered the equation, there's now a tug of war between the husband and the wife. The husband may lead, but will not always do so sacrificially or in love or with his wife's best interest in mind. The wife, she may submit, but sometimes begrudges it or does not follow the decisions of her husband. Where there should be oneness, there is now a clear two-ness. And to this day, when we deal with marital issues, this is what's going on. There's a two-ness, me, my, what I deserve, what I think is best, what I feel, and not us. There's not a unity that comes from the garden. And so every time there is marital strife, every time you disagree with your spouse and you can't seem to work it out, whether you realize it or not, you're living out the fall. And you should be reminded of this moment in the garden. Now, lest we be accused of being unfair, let's turn our attention to the husband. For he actually receives the, the greatest amount of commentary. He, just like Eve, though, is allowed to live. He's not killed on the spot, despite being promised that if you eat of the fruit, you shall die. Instead, just like Eve, he's given two consequences for his sin. The first consequence is that his work is cursed. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. All of the plants that make farming difficult sprung up due to Adam's sin. We only assume that gardening was quite easy before the fall. He likely always yielded a harvest greater than that which he put into the ground. He put in one seed, he got out ten. He put in ten, he got out a hundred. A multitude, an overflowing abundance of, of work to benefit ratio. But from here forward, creation would fight against the dominion of man. He would struggle and strain all of the days of his life to produce that which he needs, bread. God doesn't take away his ability to produce. That would be cruelty beyond measure. Instead, he makes sure that whether he realizes it or not, every time man works the field and gets sweat upon his face, every time he strains or struggles, he is living out this moment in creation. He's being reminded of the fall and that time in the garden. The second consequence outlined for Adam, it was apparent for both of them, but it was specifically given to Adam, is that death would enter into the world. He may not have died right then and there, but death would come. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's not sweat before the fall. There was probably not back pain. It did not hurt to work. Work was a joy, a delight. Work was an opportunity to glorify God and be a part of His image-bearing people. And yet here, we find the truth of a physician who once said, perfect health is simply the slowest rate at which one can die. That's where we're relegated. We are slowing down an inevitable process. Dust you are and dust you shall return. These are heavy consequences for Adam and Eve. And as we live many years later, further and further away from the purity of their genetics, we feel this, don't we? We feel the weight of work being hard. We feel the weight of childbearing being difficult. We feel the weight of struggle in our marriages and our relationships. We feel the weight of life and death itself, and we should. But I pray that you're not too discouraged this morning, even as you do seriously contemplate your sin, because this is the sin of our forefathers, the absolute purest of our, of our race. Adam and Eve really were our best chance at this. And they fell into sin, and yet here we are daily by intentionally or by leaving out, disobeying God and incurring these consequences. Sin comes at a cost. But I'm not here this morning to discourage you about the cost of sin. I want to give you hope. I want you to know that it is important, and there was a reason we've gone through the structure the way we have, because sin does have a cost. But the most beautiful thing I could share with you this morning, even before the cost is outlined, the payment is secured. 
Hear that again. Even before the cost is outlined, given to Adam and to Eve, the payment is secured. Sin's defeat is promised before the consequences for it are delved out. But we have to be careful, and the reason we've done what we have, if you don't understand the weight and the depth and the gravity and the seriousness of your sin, you won't delight at the fact that it has been forgiven. And so as we have felt the weight of our sin and the weight of the sin of Adam and Eve, turn with me to our final section, verses 14 and 15, as we hear what God did and promised to do even from the beginning. Because he doesn't begin with Adam, he doesn't begin with Eve. God begins with the serpent. And out of all of the judgments, his is the most condemning. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Earlier in this chapter, we read that the serpent itself was the craftiest creature that God made. And yet here in the judgment, a judgment both for the creature itself and for Satan, it's a judgment of humiliation. It's a a humbling judgment. You were the craftiest creature, now you will be the lowliest. You were high and mighty, now you shall be on the ground eating the dust of the earth. The serpent is restricted to the lowliest state imaginable. Now this isn't to say that serpents eat dust as a diet. This is not a commentary on the digestion of serpents. Uh, But it is to subject the serpent. You shall be despised and rejected. You shall be feared and hated. You shall be thought of least amongst all of creation. But God takes it further than that. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan deceived Adam and Eve because they wrongly trusted his words against God. And in his judgment, God says, I will replace the trust that Adam and Eve had for you with enmity. I will undo what has been done. I will will take what you pride yourself in and I will strip that from you. Man will hate Satan and his ways. Satan will continue to be a snare for man. We see that in the bruising of man's heel. We do not make light of the great tempter and and the consequences of following him and turning our back on God. It will hurt and will require a price as we've already seen. But in the end, man will bruise the head of Satan. Now in the Hebrew language, this word here conveys fatal language. Many of you, um, if you're reading a translation other than the ESV, um, will translate that word crush to denote the finality or the forcefulness to which it should be applied. You may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It is meant to be a very barbaric final act. Satan will be defeated by a death blow. Now the question we have to answer is where will this come from? And from here forward, especially in the Old Testament, every male born is measured against this promise. 
Who will be the one to crush Satan? Who will bring about the defeat of the great tempter? And sadly, we will see as we continue through this book, Lord willing, again and again, there's not found anyone able to do what needs to be done. But don't miss this. God's promise is that a seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. What is needed for that? Procreation and sustenance. You need to have children to have a child defeat Satan. You need to feed that child to make sure it lives. God, even in his judgment, was prolonging and preserving the life of his people so that he could fulfill his promise that he had laid out for them. And it's important to remember, this promise is made before the judgments are carried out. I would say we could describe the Bible as a book of longing. It's a book about longing for the one to come who would defeat Satan and bring restoration to the line of Adam and Eve. And we do find him. He is present. We find him in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, offers the crushing blow to the head of Satan. He bought back victory over death and the grave. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I today do not have to fear the consequences for our sin. For they have been paid and paid in full. That's not to say we can do whatever we want. Sin carries consequences, even forgiven sin. We must pay for the acts that we do. If you rob a bank, God may forgive you, but you're still going to jail. Sin is wrong. But eternally, we will not face punishment for our sin if we're resting in Jesus Christ. Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Creation language. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And then later in the chapter, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the promise of God's Word. That's the hope of the Bible. As we read through this narrative, as we go through the stories and we talk about the descendants of Adam and Eve and we look over and over and over at these families and we hope maybe they will be the one to give us what we need, we find ourselves going, no, nope, so close, so close. You almost had it. You were almost there. All throughout the Old Testament to Jesus Christ. And when we get there, we'll go, finally. Finally, he did what needed to be done. He did what we could not do. He purchased what we needed in him. We are new creation. Our first Adam fell. Our second Adam rose again. Our first Adam died. Our second Adam lives. In our first Adam, we are dead. In our second Adam, in Jesus Christ, we have life. Dear brothers and sisters, this morning, I beg you, trust in Jesus Christ. Sin is costly. It'll cost you everything. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. The only hope for the forgiveness of your sin and your eternal state is to rest in Him and what He's done for us.
But my promise to you is it will be enough because he is good and he has promised it. Let us pray. Oh God, we come before you this morning, I pray, feeling the weight of our sin. It's hard to read of Adam and Eve and and see their sin on display, but yet we know our own hearts. We know our own sin. We know what it would be like if we were the people that God chose to put on these pages. We would recoil at the very thought of that because we are great sinners. Father, I pray that each and every one here and those joining us online know and trust and rest in the finished work of Christ because that's the only way we can dispel the fear and the consequences and the pain that sin brings. We are great sinners, but we serve an even greater Savior. I pray that we all know this and rest in this and trust in this this day. We thank you that even before the consequences of sin are given, you declare your hope and your plan for victory, and you make it sured. And as we read through the scriptures, we find out you kept your word, and that you continue to do so even to this day. Thank you, O Lord, for being a God who keeps his promises. Be with us now. In Christ's name, amen.